everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for um, another year uh, that we get to be together. Um, Lord, I thank you that um, you've brought everybody here this morning, allowed us to be here and have this wonderful opportunity to be together, uh, gathered um, as a body, Lord, of believers. And we get, to stump, we get to come and study your word together, Lord. We, we're grateful for this opportunity. We pray that today as we uh, study a little bit about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would give me the words to say. Um, we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, well, guys, this morning, um, thank you guys for being here. Uh, We're going to be starting our new series, uh, and it's titled Roots. The premise of this series is for us, as you can see on the screen, to just go over a few of the foundations of our faith, right? Going back to basics, essentially, uh, I couldn't think of a, a, a better way, I guess, to start off our time together. I'm excited to officially finally uh, be the new high school pastor here with you guys. I know that we were, yeah, man, <clears throat> I know that we started off uh, this kind of transition already uh, at the end of last year with our studies uh, with the book of Habakkuk, but now coming together and finally starting off this ministry uh, alongside one another, I just want to get us in the right mindset. Uh, go back to basics, readdress or revisit some things that I think will prepare us moving forward, right? So I just want to touch on a few things for the next coming weeks that are going to equip us, are going to focus us in on a few different things that are, again, going to help us with our goal and our mission here at Citizen, and that is to boldly share Christ. And so today, as we look at the foundations of our faith and we study this series for series chapter one, if you could say, we're going to be looking at a word, um, and that word is called discipleship. It's a word that is familiar perhaps to some of you, if not all of you, but this concept of discipleship, this idea of discipleship, disciple isn't just merely agreeing with somebody on something. Being a disciple is not agreeing with somebody. Um, that's not all that it is. So what is a disciple? Of course, Christianity, right, agreeing on certain things, specifically the gospel, that is a huge part of it. That's a, a crucial, essential part of Christianity, but it's so much more than just agreeing in a certain um, theology or a certain set of beliefs, Each and every one of us gives their lives to Christ. And as we talk about discipleship this morning, we'll see a little bit about what that looks like. Disciple is used around 200 times in the Gospels, right? We see this word uh, referencing Jesus' followers. And in the original language, when we look at what it means to be a disciple, it means to be a learner. And that word, disciple, it really comes from the verb to learn. That's where we get this idea, this word, disciple. And 
When I ask you guys, well, what do you think of when I say to learn? Right? Because disciple is a very specific type of learning, but often when I maybe ask you guys about learning, or even myself, when I think about learning, the first thing I think about is school, right? You would say that if I ask you, hey, uh, when do you learn? Or what does it look like for you to learn? Well, I do that at school all the time, right? But if I can be honest, um, it looks a little bit different than that. Let me ask you this. In school, I know we all have it, but raise your hand. I just want to hear a few of you guys. But what is your least favorite class in school? What is your least favorite class? English. Maybe not your least favorite or the one you're just terrible at. Math. Math. History. French. Biology. Math. Bingo. Well, and on that one, because mine was also math. I stunk up the joint when it came to math. And in math class, right, what do you do? You show up. They show you all these different kind of formulas, all these different equations. Letters at some point get introduced, which <laughs> threw me off. Um, and then they also teach you what shapes look like what angles look like. They tell you all these things that are super valuable for you later on in life. Um, but me in math class, I would show up. I would take notes, right? I would listen, and I would do everything that I had to do, right? The practice sheets they hand out, they typically go over certain problems, the problem of the day, equations that you're gonna be looking at, formulas, and you gotta fill out a practice sheet that pretty much goes over that same thing a hundred different ways, and so you fill it out. I did that to the best of my ability, and I didn't enjoy it, but I did it because I had to do it. Technically, if I look back at that moment, I would consider that, or I would say I was learning, but in reality, what I was really doing was just the bare minimum, and at times, most of the time, I was just doing what I had to do just enough to get a good grade, right? If I'm being honest, I didn't really even care about getting good grades. I only did it because I knew if I didn't get good grades, I knew what my mom's reaction would be. And so I did the best that I could to stay out of trouble. And some of you Latinos, if, you, if there are any Latinos out there, you know what I'm talking about. But um, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. I wouldn't recommend that approach to learning to anybody. But Today, because of that, if you asked me anything about those classes, if you asked me what is this equal, uh, what is this plus this, or what is the square root of this, or whatever, I mean, if I don't have a calculator, even if I have a calculator, I probably couldn't tell you, but all that stuff that I apparently learned, none of that is any information that I retain. Thankfully, I don't have the expectation, right, to, to remember all that stuff. But it wasn't just like math class. I mean, I was terrible at math class, but I kind of incorporated that strategy in most of my classes, right? I would show up. I kind of knew what I had to do. And you guys at this point, for the most part, have been in school long enough to know what you have to do, the certain expectations that you have, 
almost like in a routine. You just show up to school and you go through the motions almost. And you're so used to just listening, writing down, or following, taking notes, but are we really learning, right? Are we sitting down and, and taking all of this in, putting this information in our heads to really retain it or just to get a grade or just to get by to a certain point? If you think about it, that's one kind of learning. That's not the kind of learning that we just mentioned here when we talk about what it means to be a disciple. When we talk about this kind of learning, we see something else in reference to discipleship. Because the Bible, it speaks of disciple learning, and it is talking about something that was very common in the Jewish culture. Something that you would see quite often. A rabbi, a teacher, he was often well-known, would have been somebody that had several students following him. People that came with him, came alongside him, and they were considered his disciples. And this teacher, obviously, he, he required a certain things from them, had qualifications, obligations for, uh, for his students. They had obligations to each other and regularly. What happens is when people read the Bible, they see Jesus had disciples, right? They read about the 12, how Jesus chose people to follow him, and how they called him rabbi, and they think that that is a specific case to Jesus, right? Oh, Jesus is this incredible man. Of course he had people that followed him. He was a leader. He was a rabbi, a teacher, and they got to learn firsthand from them. They assume, potentially, you may have done so, that this was strictly just the case for Jesus, but not so. This wasn't unique to Jesus. Instead, Several different rabbis, many teachers in that culture, they had disciples. Discipleship with Jesus, however, was more than just learning ideas. Discipleship with Jesus, when we talk about learning, it was also about impacting the life. When his disciples followed him, right, they weren't just learning, they weren't just sitting there taking notes that Jesus had for them. But when his disciples followed him, Along with his teaching, as he taught them, they also got to be a part of it. They got to see not just him teaching the crowds and listening to everything that he was saying, but they also got to walk with him and live with Jesus. They were learning by hearing, but also living and witnessing what Jesus was doing. So when Jesus, he teaches about, and we read this in scripture, when he teaches about prayer, they weren't just hearing him talk about prayer, but they witnessed, they saw him actually practice those things. Jesus wasn't just saying, and they went their way, and Jesus went their way, and then they came back, and Jesus taught them something else, but no, Jesus was teaching the people about prayer, and they followed him, and they watched as Jesus implemented everything that he was teaching them in his own life. See, Jesus wasn't teaching the people to do something that he himself was not doing. So as he taught on prayer, they saw him pray to his Father. And as he preached on forgiveness, forgiving and loving your enemies, they saw him love those 
who despised him. When he instructed people and he instructed them to trust God, to lean on him, when he taught on trusting God, they also saw as he himself trusted God and he placed his trust in his heavenly father. There's so many other examples of this, but the point is learning, this specific learning goes beyond the information we put our heads, we put in our heads, but it is also seeing it impact our lives. And you see, Jesus, of course, he had those specific disciples that we talk about. You know, the 12 are pretty infamous, and we know them as the close inner circle of Jesus, but we also know that Jesus had many disciples. Many people followed him, and we'll even read about today how the large crowds followed him. We know that once he rose from the dead, you know, before ascending into heaven, there were hundreds, there was 120 people there witnessing that take place. There were a large number of people that followed Jesus. That means that we're also invited to be a disciple of Jesus. But what does that mean? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? It doesn't just mean that we go to church. It doesn't just mean that we show up here and we consider ourselves to be disciples. We can come to church and not be disciples of Jesus. Believing that he died and that he rose again, that he lives today, that's a start. But discipleship, it calls for allegiance and sacrifice. So ultimately then, what is discipleship? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus today? My hope is to look at the book of Luke, to look at this text, and maybe get a better grasp on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does discipleship look like in our lives? So if you would, you turn with me to Luke 14, as we look at the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke, throughout this book, you'll see him really focus in on the importance of walking by faith and not in unbelief, and the context of this chapter, specifically Luke 14, is Jesus has left his ministry in Galilee. He is now on his way with a large crowd following him to Jerusalem, a place in which he will be crucified. He knows what lies ahead. He knows what's coming. He knows he's gonna be rejected by his own people. And he knows what that means for the people that identify themselves with him. He knows that those that identify themselves with Jesus will face adversity. That they run the risk, that they're at danger to some extent. And he understands this and he knows them. And so with this understanding, as they are on their way to Jerusalem, this is what he says. As he defines discipleship and what it entails. In verse 25, we see that it says, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life cannot be my disciple. Now, it's a pretty uh, startling uh, statement from Jesus. You would assume, and I think it's, fairly certain that a lot of eyebrows were probably raised at this point. Interestingly enough, this is probably something that pushed people away. 
But he makes it clear that not everyone who claims to be a disciple really is. You know, you and I can't do that. You and I couldn't do that. We, we can't claim to know somebody's spiritual condition for sure. Of course, we can look at somebody's fruits or maybe the lack thereof, but we can't make a statement like that. We, we can't claim that, but as the master himself, as a rabbi, as the one who is the leader of these disciples, the one who they are following, he can make that claim. He can speak on this matter. And as a rabbi, again, we know that he himself has the authority to list the qualifications of his disciples, of who can be his disciples, who can claim to be his disciple. And what he says is this. Again, I'll read it for you. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, before those of you in the crowd that like to argue with your brothers and sisters a lot get really excited about this, hold your horses, don't get too caught up in what he's saying here because it's not what you think. He's not really saying you must hate your family. Hate other people. That's not what he's saying. Jesus, what he is really saying here with these words is that when it comes to family relationships, they must concede in regards to your love for him. In other words, he must be put first. And this is something that might have been probably or would have been really startling for them, almost even offensive because for them in their culture and their uh, custom in that society, to honor your parents was almost held to the highest regard, right? The highest obligation. And family was where you would find your greatest joy. So for him to say something like this was very startling, but again, he says, you must put me first. What he is saying is you must put me above every other relationship. That their relationship with Jesus must take priority in their lives. And that is a statement only he can make. Only he can make. Only God demands that kind of devotion that Jesus is calling for here. If you look at Deuteronomy Chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, we see God say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Could you imagine anybody else saying what he says here? You have to put me first. Imagine if I came up here and I said, This is our first Sunday together. The first time we're together, we start off the year, and I'm like, All right, well... Eric's gone. Finally, we get to do things the right way. I am number one. I don't care what you guys think, what your relationships, what your family looks like. I know you love them, but you got to love me more. (laughs) You probably think I'm crazy. You probably call me a lunatic. Uh, I probably wouldn't be here next Sunday. But nobody can make that kind of statement. Nobody can say these things. And if you do say these things, you're either one of two things. You're either insane, 
crazy or your God. And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is God. He has the right to come to us and demand first place. Jesus, he was different than anybody that stepped foot on this planet. While he was here on earth, his message was very clear, right? It was love, not hate. So we know that when we read this, it can't be that we must sincerely hate our family. Again, it's not what he's saying. So when we read this verse, he's not saying that we're supposed to hate our parents or our siblings, but rather it is desiring something less than something else. Again, in essence, he is saying that we are supposed to place a greater significance and priority in our relationship with Jesus. We are to put God first. And in Jesus' time, in that context, in Jesus' day, and even in cultures today, for aware of the situation some people live in, the decision that we see here to put God first Right, to us, maybe taken a little bit more lightly because of the culture we live in. Because of the world we live in, the luxuries that we have, typically our relationship with God, right, it has a positive effect on our relationship with our families, right? You would say that if I am walking with the Lord, if I'm following what he says, there's a good chance this is going to help me in my relationship with others, especially with my family. I know that to be the case for me in my own personal life. However, in some places, in certain contexts, if someone makes the decision or made a decision for Jesus, it means that they will most likely be rejected by their own family, that they would be persecuted by them, even to the point of death. You see, choosing Jesus, loving him above your family and placing him as a priority in your life may seem easy for us or on the surface seem easy. In reality, it's not that easy, but the decision to do that in certain contexts of the world is completely different. To choose to do that would be to choose a life of persecution. Some of us, some of us may be here this morning pretty tired, sleepy, maybe not even wanting to be here. Maybe some of you are here this morning because your parents dragged you along and you didn't have a choice, right? Your parents made you come and you're here because you have to be here but you're not really interested, and it doesn't really matter to you. But I want to just challenge you guys this morning that although some of you may be here on your own volition, some of you may not, if somebody else in a different culture, in a different context, chose to come to a place like this, if other people found out that they were at a place like this, they would be risking their own lives. We have the luxury of coming to a place like this to express our faith freely. To be able to come on a Sunday morning and 
and have this time with one another, to be able to open God's word and not have to worry about tomorrow. But that is not the reality for everyone. So that's why when Jesus says what he says here, it's not to be taken lightly. You have to understand the people that are hearing this. Understand that six months later when Jesus said this, six months later he was killed. And even his closest followers, when asked, hey, do you know who Jesus was? They denied him because they were afraid. It may seem easy for us here, but the reality is that sometimes, in a lot of people's cases, choosing Jesus Placing him above every other relationship means persecution. And that's, and that's what he's calling for. He's unapologetically asking, hey, you have to put me first. You have to put me above everybody else, every other relationship, despite what others may think, despite the persecution that may come the disapproval of your family, if you fear that more than your love for me, you cannot be my disciple. Again, it's easy for us to say that in this kind of culture, but imagine just for a moment you were in that time or if you were in a culture where it's not accepted like it is here in the States. Would you make the same decision? Would you be here this morning? He doesn't end there. He's not just saying this, that you must love me more than every other relationship, but he also follows that up in verse 27 with this. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And again, unfortunately, I think this is something that has maybe lost its significance due to the world that we live in and the luxuries that we have today. Thankfully, by the grace of God, we don't see people being crucified anymore. We don't just see people in the streets uh, walking and, and carrying these crosses and have to witness a crucifixion. But aside from the examples that we see in movies, perhaps, and even in the accounts of Jesus' own crucifixion in the Bible, imagine the people who would have heard this at this time. Again, for us, reading this, bear your own cross, it just seems like, okay, yeah, I get it. I have to, I have to sacrifice. I have to, um, I have to put Jesus first. I have to put my own will and my self aside. It's self-denial, right? We kind of equate it to self-denial putting him in first place as we just saw. But for the people here, when they thought about crucifixion, it was so much more than self-denial. Crucifixion for them meant humiliation. It meant sacrificial death. They knew exactly what it was to pick up a cross. They knew the horrors of what it meant to pick up a cross. Let me try to explain this to you a little bit. At that time, if you were carrying a cross and meant you were going to die on that cross. If you picked up a cross, there was no other reason for you to pick it up 
other than to take it to where you would die. I think about this summer, right? I was in the DR. I know some of you were in the Dominican with myself. And one day, specifically, we were sitting at a beach, and everybody, for the most part, was in the water, except for one brave soul, Benny. And Benny saw a log about this big, this heavy piece of wood that was, like, rotten. And you know Benny, if you know who he is, you know what kind of person he is. I'll leave it at that, but... He saw it and immediately took it upon himself to pick up the log, right? He challenged himself to pick that thing up and put it on his back. And I'll tell you what, he was there for a while. He was there for at least 30 minutes trying to put that log on his back. He got scratched up. He was bleeding quite a bit. And his, uh, his ego was challenged. However, at the end of the day, he got it. Right, he ended up squatting that log on his back, and he was, on, he was on the top of the world when he did it. But, listen, the point is this. this. This whole thing where people are picking up logs, flipping tires, this CrossFit stuff, I know that he's obsessed with it. Right, you might see something similar to that, and we might be able to paint a picture of what that might look like, but this... That wasn't a thing. People weren't just doing what Benny did back in the day. They weren't just hunking logs on their back and lifting it like that. They weren't picking up these big beams, right? These crosses and squatting them and trying to work out. No. If you picked up a cross, if you put that horizontal beam on your back, it was a one-way street one direction, and it was always the same destination. There was no other option. What's fascinating about this is that Jesus is not asking of them something he himself has not already done, or in this case, would do. Jesus says, hey, come after me. Jesus, as we know today, reading the gospel and seeing that, again, only a few months later, he would bear his cross and go to the cross and die that death for us. He has gone first. He has picked up his cross. And if we desire to be followers of Jesus, we must follow him to the cross too. That means dying to ourselves, dying to sin. And we all have our own cross to bear. And he made it very clear here that only cross bearers can be his disciple. This is something that takes place inside of all of us. And he's not calling for us to actually walk around with these crosses on our backs every day. But if you think what your family thinks is more important than following Jesus... You cannot be his disciple. If you think what your friends think is more important than following Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. If you think what the culture thinks is more important than following Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. 
And if you think that your plans and that your ways are more important than following Jesus, you will also not be his disciple. It costs you something to make the decision to follow Jesus. It costs you something. And we all have to count the cost to choose to follow Jesus to the end, being willing to surrender and sacrifice. Jesus says this in regards to counting the cost. He finishes up this section in verse 28 through 33, and he says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. For what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Before kind of stepping into this position as pastor here at Maranatha, um, I had studied a little bit of business in, in college, and I'd work in that uh, in that area as well. I had a career in business marketing to some extent, and so I'm a little bit, um, a little bit, uh, I guess, I wouldn't say I'm well-versed in it, but, I'm, but I have some, some knowledge on the matter. But I know that in business, and I've studied this, um, and I've seen this, but in business, there's something called the cost-benefit analysis. And what this means is you do a study on examining the costs of a certain project and you match it against the benefits of that project, right? So you compare pretty much the costs and the benefits, right? In its simplest term, that's what you do when you're doing this analysis. Now, what happens is if the cost is greater than the benefits you probably wouldn't go through with it, but if the benefits outweigh the cost of this project, you're probably going to see it out. Now, what Jesus is saying here, more or less, more or less, is after having laid down the requirements for what it means to be a disciple, right, to be willing to put him above every other relationship, to put him first, and to be cross-bearers. He's listed the requirements for us. He then says, as he told to the crowd there, we have to consider the cost of being a disciple. He says, here, I, I've laid it out for you. This is what it means to be a disciple. I want you to think about the cost for your own life. What does it mean for you to be a disciple? You know what it takes are you willing to follow me? Count the cost. And he uses here illustrations, right? He uses here examples for us as we saw. He emphasizes that a builder does not begin until he knows that he has the adequate resources to do so. 
We look at, for example, a illustration like that and we think it's pretty straightforward. We look at an illustration and we're like, yeah, for sure, right? That makes sense. It's Jesus saying, hey, we have to count the cost. And so in order to get this teaching across, he's just using an, app, an application that would make sense at that time and even today. But I would say, and I want you guys to know, it's so much more than that as well. Jesus doesn't just say this by chance. Jesus, as he is speaking and he is painting this image to people, this is very significant and powerful to Jesus' hearers at that time. If we look through historical accounts, and again, we know that Jesus lived to be around 33, right? We know that this was six months before his crucifixion. If we look a little bit further back, a few years before this was happening, just a few years earlier in AD 27, a poorly constructed amphitheater collapsed during a gladiatorial event. It was a city near Rome, Fidne. And this right here, this collapse was the world's largest sporting disaster in all of history. 50,000 people were either killed or injured. The people would have known that. This happened because it was poorly constructed. Because the person who built it tried to cut corners. He didn't count the cost. And what did it cost? The lives of thousands. So as Jesus is painting this picture of what it looks like to count the cost, these people are not taking it lightly. They have a very clear example of what it looks like when we don't count the cost. How thousands lost their lives. So just as Jesus is telling them there, in the same seriousness that they took what he was saying, we ought to today look at this and, and count the cost. To sincerely look at what Jesus is saying, understand what he is calling us to do here, and what he asks and demands of us, and count the cost, because it does cost us something to be a disciple of his. You can be saved by accepting Jesus, but you'll never follow him and serve him until you're willing to make a sacrifice and to surrender. As we come and surrender our lives to Jesus, we have to understand what that means, what it means to put him first. The reality is the Christian life is often difficult, and it means dying to yourself and walking by faith, and we must be cross bearers. We have to understand what that infers. Our mission as a youth group here, Maranatha, is to what? Boldly share Christ. It's on the wall. It's something that is constantly repeated. To boldly share Christ. And I think one of the, the biggest hurdles for us to cross, one of the reasons why we may struggle in doing that is because it's difficult for us to pick up our cross knowing the implications of what that means. 
knowing that if we are going to go out into our schools and out into the world and boldly share Christ, to share our faith, what that might mean for our relationships, for our reputation, for the way people see us, what people think of us. Again, we have to be careful and not placing a greater importance on that than our relationship with Jesus because we heard what he said here. If you want to follow me, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you must put me first and bear your cross. Are you willing to deny yourself? Are you willing to put others' opinions and put culture and what people think and what the status quo is to the side to follow Jesus, to surrender everything and follow him. I'm not saying that's easy, and Jesus himself doesn't say that either, but I can tell you this, that choosing to follow Jesus is the most glorious life you can ever live. If you give up your life for Christ, he doesn't just reward you in this life here, but also, most importantly, in the one to come. So put him first. And understand that as you bear your cross, as he calls you to do so, he's not calling you to do something that he hasn't already done. And lastly, count the cost. You know what it takes to be his disciple. Are you willing to be a disciple of Jesus? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the time that we have together, uh, for getting to come together and study your word. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us may put first things first, Lord. Put our relationship with you first. Sometimes our relationships with others even the relationship to some extent that we have with materialistic things, Lord. Those things take precedent in our lives. I pray that we would put you first in our lives every single day, that we would be willing to bear our cross for you, Lord, understanding what that means, understanding that that is a one-way street, Lord. Or do you call for allegiance and sacrifice? I pray that we would be willing to do so, understanding as well that you have gone before us. You are not calling us to something that you yourself have not already done, Lord. I pray that we would consider these things, that we would earnestly count the cost, not take this lightly, Lord. This decision is not to be taken lightly, Lord, and you said it yourself. We must count the cost. I pray that each and every one of us would count that cost. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Good morning and citizens.